1: Hello, everybody! Uh, thanks for joining us today. I'm Jonathan Kimmet. Uh, Kim is out. She just had, she just finished up a great event in Seattle, and so she's on her way home right now. So she asked me to come in and uh, have a good time. You know, I love coming into the uh, the show and and really talking about to our guests about different topics in cybersecurity. So I'm really excited to be here. Uh, let's see a couple of basic things. Looks like we've got Baltimore coming up on March 14th, um, and then let's see. I know I am going to be in St. Louis uh, the following week for I think it's uh, March 21st, um, and uh, I've got a a great topic uh, for the the presentation. It's we're going to be talking about the things that CISOs don't want to say but they really need to. So hopefully it's gonna be a great topic where we're we're gonna have a good time. So just like today, we're gonna have a great time. Uh, I've got a a great guest, I'm gonna bring him on, it's Arun D'Souza, and I've not met him before, so this is gonna be a great opportunity for me to interact with him, and I've got some great questions for him. So Arun, thank you so much for joining us today here on and Security For All radio show.
2: Yeah, nice to meet you, Jonathan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for to Kim and the FutureCon team for inviting me. I wanted to ask you, are you from St. Louis, uh, Jonathan?
1: I am not. I am from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ah. Um, my family is actually from St. Louis, and I haven't been back in 24 years. So it's uh, almost a quarter of a century since I've been back at St. Louis. So I'm, I'm kind of excited to to go up there um, and uh, meet everyone. One. I've got some some people that used to work for me at TU that I want to, to go up and see, plus meet a whole bunch of new people at, at the FutureCon event.
2: Wonderful. Yeah, they're always great stuff, right? Uh, yes. I myself will be in St. Louis a couple of uh, times this month. I'm going to be playing the American Duplicate Bridge uh, Nationals, so that'll be okay. great. Okay. to it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. Well, speaking of that, tell us about yourself. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? I mean, give us all the specifics because, uh, I, again, I, I did I, – to be honest, I went out on LinkedIn and I was kind of poking around your profile and all kinds of things, trying to you know learn who you were. But give the audience a, kind of a brief breakdown of, uh, of who you are.
2: So So I grew up in – Mumbai, India, as they say it now, it used to be called Bombay at the time. And for the life of me, I cannot stop calling it Bombay. So, but today I remembered that's Mumbai. Uh, I came to the United States uh, actually in 1988 to do my graduate work at Vanderbilt University. I had got a master's and PhD at Vanderbilt University. An interesting thing that PhD was done actually at a boiler plant. And that's where actually I learned how to get along with people from all walks of life because a lot of the operators and managers were from the Marines and the Navy. And, you know, as a guy from Bombay, I I learned to deal with people. That was a big learning lesson for me, not in so far just as the academic, curriculum, but how it prepared me to get out into the wide world well later on and work with people from all walks of life. <clears throat> I uh, graduated and then I've been uh, actually a CISO that was in, you know, 94. I got my PhD, then I worked in industry. Uh, and later on in 2003, I became the CISO for the first time at a company called Energy Automotive Systems. And I've been a CISO for a number of years now. It's just over 20 years, I guess. Uh, Through that time, I've been fortunate to make a lot of friends in the industry. I speak a lot of events. Uh, I write uh, thought leadership articles. I've been really blessed to be in the industry. It's it's really been great. Uh, If you ask me what my interests are from a professional perspective, uh, I'm interested a lot in identity, zero trust, Cloud security, privacy, and then from a more uh, management perspective, strategic planning, enterprise management—you know, these are kind of my calling cards, if you will. Not to mention right. negotiation, and you know, that's another thing that I'm quite good at. But negotiation, not for sake, but building strategic alliances with technology providers to find win-win outcomes for everybody. So, right. well, the intro helped.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've got to ask, I mean, you've been in the industry a long time and you've been doing that, that CISO role or that security you know mindset for, you know, a lot of different organizations, you know, a lot of different parts of the industry. Um, what, I mean, go back 20 years. What do you think has really been the major change that has happened for the industry, for the security industry, in the time that you've been in it? You know, what what did you think about things back then? You know, twenty years ago, ten years ago, and now? What what? Talk to us about that evolution for yourself.
2: Oh, absolutely! Not just for me, but for the for the CISO role as a whole, right? So I think. Uh, the CISO role has evolved in four different avatars. So back in the day when I first started, I would say it was the era of the technical CISO, and actually nobody wanted to hear or see you as long as nothing happened. Right. <laughs> that, that was that. In fact, the CEO of the company once came to me and said, you're doing a great job, but I don't want to see you or hear from you. because I see, you, hear you. Nothing <laughs> must happen. <laughs> right? So I had a time. He gave me a you know man hug, and that was that. And right, so, right. So that was you know that was me. So I started in two thousand three. So two thousand three to two thousand seven, two thousand eight. That was more the technical season. Right. Then we became from two thousand seven to about I would say, you know two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Era of the business. Uh, CISO, the B-SOs and all that stuff, right? Right. Uh, and maybe even 11 and 12. And then we got into the age uh, of the risk uh, the CISO, right? Uh, so that yep. was the thing. And then uh, more lately, there's the era of the transformational CISO because driving digital transformation, working side-by-side with yep. the CIO to drive transformation, right? And um, <clears throat> actually, what is leading up to I think is the fact that there is another era out there, and just uh, just me thinking, you know, wishfully maybe the uh, CISO as the chief risk officer of the company. Because the reason I say that is, uh, and maybe not all CISOs are qualified or interested, but. I see a national convergence coming between the field of information security, yeah. privacy and enterprise risk, and who better than the CISO to lead that function? Because today they are islands unto themselves, privacy yeah. is under legal, and enterprise risk under finance, and, and it could be a hell of a lot more efficient if it was under one org. And we wouldn't start you know, programmatically by doing them as a program management office, but that's kind of where I see the next generation of CISO you know, leading towards.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's really interesting. So I'm I'm writing a book right now about um, some CISO stuff. And, you know, and I talk about what you just described, you know, the kind of the evolution of CISOs. But what I find now is you still find organizations that have a very technical CISO Mm -hmm. or a very strategic CISO or a transformational CISO. And, And it's it what I what I and I think you would agree with me those are very different skill sets for a CISO.
2: They are fully agreed with you. I mean, uh, you know, just to poke fun at myself because I'd done a PhD when I first came in the industry. If you're doing graduate work, if you went to a you know, a research committee meeting, if we didn't show lots of stuff, they thought it didn't do any work. So, right. <laughs> so that was right. the only thing I knew. Now, of course, my English is excellent. Writing is excellent. So I had to unlearn that, right? And learn yes. to be targeted, tailored to the audience, which I learned fairly fast, right? So I myself learned that. But I think the way it's actually evolved is I think you've got to build relationships. You've yes. got to be able to communicate well in layman's terms. Got to really find win-win outcome, but over and over everything. I think, personally, they you ask me, Arun, if you have to describe yourself, how would you describe yourself? I'd say I describe myself as a change agent, you know, and embracing change, fearlessly, because that's what it takes, right?
1: Right.
2: tough problems and finding the people, process, and technology, uh, images to do it, and lead change by the relationships you build, right? Yes. Enterprise risk.
1: Yeah, right. Well, and, and changes, I mean, you you described it to a T. The CISO role has changed over the last 20 years. It will continue to change because it is, I think you're absolutely right. I think moving into that, that risk and privacy and data protection and all that, I think all that is kind of merging and mm-hmm. that CISOs, it's like the CISO is moving into absorbing those pieces and it's moving mm-hmm. forward in the, in the organization. Um but, you know, that that change is just part of our industry, you know, in that security industry. if And what I see is when I when people don't change, that's when when there's problems. Um, because the business is changing, the people are changing, skill sets are changing.
2: Yeah, you know, I have a arunism of one of very many. Either get ahead of the curve or you'll be left behind.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, now... Change. Speaking of change, let me ask you something, because it's actually one of the topics we have that we we put on the on the show. And that's that building that resilient team, you know, building that team that for the organization, because, again, you've got all different kinds of CISOs, all different kinds of organizations. So let's talk to me a little bit about how you feel or what you think about building that resilient team for the organization.
2: Absolutely. So before i talk jump directly to answer i'd like to preface it uh, now cyber resilience in so far as itself has become mission critical and has enhanced business value due to the real- realization that even the best cybersecurity cannot guarantee 100% protection right therefore resilience protocols and measures must be designed to ensure business continuity and operational service assurance in the event of a breach so it's essential to design and build the capability to recover quickly in an agile manner while minimizing data loss and downtime, right? So therefore, resilient teams and people can mitigate the impact of cyber attacks. Starting with the people dimension, soft skills such as communication, collaboration, relationship management, invaluable and absolute must for all manner of cyber professionals. I think we talked about that earlier, Jonathan, right? Now, soft right. skills are the fuel that power the cyber engine, enacting people, process, and technology safeguards to drive change and foster resilience. Now, that being said, from a process perspective, conducting regular tabletop exercises and crisis drills with complex real-world scenarios can help security, IT, and business teams to rehearse and optimize incident response processes and more importantly, it can also help foster trust across the teams and build confidence at individual level because I have a f- saying, the power of federation, right? We're in it together, better together. So nothing helps refine that sense of togetherness than complex tabletop exercises and rehearsals. And last but not the least, we should not forget that technology must play a pivotal role in supporting cyber resilience. Uh, example. AI and machine learning can be key enablers and empower cybersecurity teams in their quest for strengthening cyber resilience. Now, that being said, the industry faces a critical talent and skills gap, uh, estimated about 4 million people in 2023 last year by InfoSec magazine, right? So, bridging this gap requires promoting diversity and inclusivity within the workforce, encouraging individuals from non-traditional backgrounds to join the cybersecurity field, supported by scholarships, work-study programs, and cross-training initiatives can help address this shortage and attract good people in the industry. And if I remember, Fortinet started a security awareness training, and there's another organization who, I forget the name, has started to invest. We need technology providers to help the cause. And as a CISO, what one must do is, you know, you have to have a service-oriented organization. So you've got to have a skills and competency framework where you know all the key services you're providing, map all the skills you're going to de- deliver, build a skills and competency framework that adapts and evolves, so that you can use that to make sure your team is correctly staffed, ensure that they have the right skills or upskill them. You know, Obviously, you'll have to use oh, external yeah. services from time to time. Hope that helped.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that because one of the things coming from higher ed, so I was the CISO of a higher institution for many years. Um, And uh, some people say I went to the dark side because I went out and became (laughs) a a consultant, a VC so consultant. But one of the things that I I truly miss at the university is the students. Um, And it's not from the the students of the fact that, um, you know, they were taking classes and stuff is the fact that I was able to bring in students to work in my security team and mm-hmm. I could train them and I could teach them. And I had so much fun at that. And we did so many great things that, you know, even to this day, when I when I go into an organization as, as a consultant, um, that's one of the first things I talk about is, OK, how do you build the, the security team, even if you don't have a security team? Mm-hmm. Let's put the right people together to start making security decisions. Um, and that's a lot of fun, actually.
2: It is. And you remind me of something I meant to say, but I forgot, Jonathan. So we make a good team. So, you know, in the NFL and MLB, when you're building a team, you can go tour outside right? to the free agents yep. or they go to the draft. Now, the free agent, of course, you can get someone fast, but then they may leave rotate and so sure. on. Sure. Right? Sure. So, and I faced that when I was building my team. I got the free agents, the high priced guys, and within two, three, six months they left. And I said, the yep. main booking, right? So I decided to go the draft route. I got, you know, in boys, gals, you know, for co-op programs and we worked out staff my team. It took a lot of effort on my part, you know, coaching them. but they stayed and when I left you know, I recently took early return from next year so I could do other things the team is largely still intact and you know, so I think that's important to take the trust of having diverse backgrounds early entry programs, ladies and different, you know, types of thinking for sure.
1: Sure, absolutely, and I think that what's important is to build the team. You have to be a team, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of those things that when I go in, they might have a team of people there or a group of people. I'll put it that way. they'll have a group of people doing a job, but it's not a team. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really important. Is so, talk to me a little bit about that. What, what do you see as that difference between a group of people doing stuff? in a team of people doing stuff. what What's your thoughts on that?
2: Well, you know, I think t- typically as a CISO, whether you're a CIO or any kind of leader, right, it's upon you to make sure to pull the team together. Now, one of the ways to do we I touched upon earlier is the notion of having either semi-annual, quarterly, or uh, annual tabletop exercise crisis bills is one way to calibrate and bring and foster the sense of togetherness, right? But another thing they've done in the past, you know, this is from another company that I found that uh, I was working for a French company, and uh, you know, the Americans and the French weren't getting along as well as they probably should. Guys on my team, so people always said, you know, hey, it's the cultural divide. And I didn't think that was the case because I traveled a lot. Right. So what I did was, I'm a big believer in sort of this, you know, the Myers Briggs team building indicator. So, so I got an outside right. room, yeah, and you know, of course, the European guys laughed at me, saying that a room, you know, <laughs> Indian American guy, he wants to know because he'd ask all those touchy feely, soft type questions, right? And so, right. anyway, they answered is just yes, because I was friends with all of them, and uh, then we actually at at a leadership meeting, we went to Miami. And uh, on the last day, the third day, the lady came back with the results and she showed the different profiles and, you know, volunteers, asked for volunteers, saying, okay, who wants to put up the hand? I'll tell you a profile and somebody else. And so on, people began to understand that it's actually personalities uh, that get in the way sometimes. It's not just the culture, right, or the right. language. And to drive that point home, what the lady did was she uh, put them on, including me uh, by the way on two boats uh, uh, sailing boats and uh, we never sailed and we had to make those things sail okay right and right. at the end of the day uh, you know we came back and we saying Arun you're a genius no I'm not a genius I wasn't looking for a <laughs> because <laughs> It came to their mind is that, you know, there are things just beyond what you take uh, for granted that are very important. Like you were saying earlier, the soft skills and the personalities, it makes a big, big difference. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, right, the for in our case, is like a coach, right? He's the coach of the team. So he needs to bring the team together and even having quarterly lunch and learns or going bowling or whatever, because... If all you rely on is just the notion of, you know, I think, uh, waiting for work to do it, then, yep. you know, she's not going to bond, right? I mean, obviously, not everyone's going to be everybody's best friend. That's not the end game. But if the leader leads by example and shows that he values those relationships and yep. he's interested in fostering trust, no, they'll, they'll rally behind. Does that help?
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, I was thinking about the things that I've done over the years to to build that team, because when I started my career at the help desk, all I had was students. You know, I had there was two employees, me and another individual. Um, And then we had uh, 10 or 12 students who worked for the help desk. And we did all tech support for the university at that point. And uh, every year we got new students in and. new personalities and new uh mindsets and you had to kind of build that you know once you start getting people in getting people working together working well together Mm -hmm. you know it's a challenge and Mm -hmm. and i'll tell you i i I threatened this once um and then i stopped and it's like i really need to do that so here, here was the threat we were having some uh um, this was again. This was twenty years ago. This was early two thousands that this was happening. I was a very young help desk supervisor, so um, just take it for what it's worth. But I had these students, and they weren't they weren't really getting along. They weren't working well together. weren't communicating. So I told them, you know what, I am where I'm going to go find a uh, a farm, and we're going to go bale hay. You know, we're going to stack hay. You know, on the and I used to do that as a kid. And when Mm -hmm. you've got a couple of people standing on the truck and you've got a couple of people walking behind, grabbing the the hay bales and throwing it up on top of the flatbed, you had to work together. There's a rhythm that you have to get, whether it's uh, baling hay or moving feed sacks or whatever. I'm I'm really showing my countryside, by the way. But but then it occurred to me – this was months, months later – We could do the same thing there. We we would buy three or four hundred computers at any one time, you know, because we were doing labs and you know. So we would get semi trucks full of computers. So I got into the habit of whenever the 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 truck came in, I'd get I'd schedule all of my students there, and I would put them in a line. It's like, all right, get the box, hand hand to this person, hand to this person, hand. And we became this, this, this process where you're handing it off, um, just like we did with uh, uh, bags of feed and things like that when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You do that for several hours and everything changes. I mean, yep. you're doing physical work. It's not hard. It's just but you you have to do it in a certain rhythm. You're working with people, you're you're having fun, you're you're you know telling jokes, you're you know, spraying each other with water, whatever the case is, you know, it's just but it it's effectively building that team. And I truly believe um that Going through that sort of hardship, and I'm not saying it was hard, but going through that <laughs> process of learning and growing together, that's truly what it means to build that team.
2: Fully agreed, and I think we both can agree then, as you and I are saying the same thing. It's a question of fostering trust and yes. reliance on each other, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. And and as a thing, I think, and you said it earlier, that's also what we do to the organization, I have some friends, I've got people, I've got colleagues that I have, I've been in the trenches with. Two o'clock in the morning, we were dealing with a problem. We were dealing with very hard. I've got an HR friend of mine who, when she was my HR person at the university, we had lots of investigations together. And when you're doing that and you're working with each other and you're building that trust with one another, it becomes a really good team. That process of... The CISO reaching out to different part, departments mm-hmm. on campus and building that relationship means you have a stronger organization from a security and privacy perspective.
2: Fully agreed, and you know I've done that sort of stuff as well. I've had an information security and privacy council with the senior leaders, but I also used to have lunches or coffees with them, or you know all those little things. People remember it, you know? So when you want to ask for help, somebody really just going to ask for help either, right? Yeah. And, Uh, But but I think it's important to share with them your wins and successes as well, right? Because the thing is, the best time to tell your update is if some major breach happens, you can give an update to say, okay, hey, you know, that wouldn't happen here because ABC. Oh, by the way, geez, it may happen here because, and they're more liable to listen to what you have to say if you're taking time to build a relation and support you.
1: Yeah, I mean, it truly is a trust thing. You need them to trust you to listen to you. Mm -hmm. And you need to trust them to be able to make changes in the organization. So I I agree 100%. Um, Now, speaking of that trust... (laughs) <laughs> um, I think we jump right into third-party vulnerabilities because there's a trust thing there. And and I think it kind of goes along with that. What we've been talking about is building that trust with your third-party vendors. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I get you on that or before I, I, I ask you any questions or anything, I just want to r- remind the audience that if you have any questions about anything we're talking about, please throw it in the chat. I will work them in. We'll get Arun to, to, to share his wisdom with us, and, and we'll have a good time. This has been a great conversation so far. So, if you're listening in the in, on LinkedIn, or if you're listening out there, throw some comments in the chat. We're we'll, we'll working in the conversation. So now, get back to third-party risk. Um, uh, give me, give me, give me some wisdom on third-party risk vulnerabilities and the things that we kind of need to think about.
2: Yeah, I. I... I think third-party risk managers are the areas that I'm very passionate about, like identity and zero trust, right? So I have a few things to say, so please bear with me and don't hesitate to interrupt if you want to, but that's okay. So examining recent uh, numerous supply chain attacks on major entities like Okta, GitHub, et cetera, you know, underscores the importance of recognizing that a security chain is only as strong as its weakest link. SEC regulations and cyber insurance requirements have elevated supply chain threat and risk to the board level, right? As well, because I used to travel to Europe a lot, I keep in touch with my friends there, they've told me that uh, those recent regulations in Europe require compliance assurance, reporting and illustration of the linkages across the supply chain other third parties, right? So how do we start to address all these things? A third party... The risk management policy is a sound place to start and it sets the foundation. This should be expanded to include a holistic cross functional supplier risk management framework. Fostering collaboration with other functions for a strat- shared strategy is vital and also building strategic partnerships and relationships with members uh, of your third party ecosystem is also very important. Now, the policy and framework will help to vet our priority if potential third party partners and ensure that they can support cyber resilience and uptime across the supply chain. This can then help the organization comply with current and evolving regulatory compliance and help prevent breaches, as well as avoid uh, brand financial and reputational impact. But that being said, at a strategic level, CISOs must strive to consolidate security, privacy, and risk into a unified approach to third-party risk management, as the risk potentially introduced by third-party directly impacts security and privacy across the business. This is key on a day-to-day operational as well as a long-time strategic business basis. The process to onboard and leverage third-party partners, vendors and suppliers, has the potential, no fooling, to either facilitate or, if done inappropriately, hinder an organization's growth. A classic case in point is a major hotel chain. thing. it was Marriott, which did an M&A, uh, with, and uh, they didn't do the proper due diligence, and you know, there was uh, not a good result after that. So we've seen examples in the past. Now, importantly, The risk posture of the third parties and organization contracts with directly impacts the risk posture of the company. And hence, it's just a sound business practice to have a robust and proactive process in place that allows for onboarding and continuous assessment of the third parties. Now, as any organization continues to mature its third party risk management, it's important to create repeatable processes within a structured format. Ideally... This could be enacted by a technology platform that is driven by the business and incorporates people, process, and technology. It's essential that whether it's built in-house or in conjunction with third-party tool, the platformer solution provides metrics on the health of the program with an easily understandable format and time for another Arunism, stamp your visa to success. And the keyword is visa. Visible, illustrative, simple, and actionable. That should be the goal there. Now, the first step may be in the form a for scorecard generated through a questionnaire that could be created and provided to third parties. And once you can afford a platform, it could be then input into the platform and enable leveraging supply analytics, which could enable visualization of risk and compliance across the organizations, partner, vendor, and supply ecosystem. It's really quite imperative to stack rank major suppliers and to drill down further to manage risk, which can take various forms and eventually could directly impact disrupted an organization's ability to service its global customer base, right? In that sense, when examining risk, it may be, depending on the third party and the importance and function, business critical to check the financial health and the stability, as well as the security posture. To ensure the efficacy of these activities so that the organization is safeguarded across the business, it's important to build cross-functional coalitions, especially with purchasing legal enterprise risk. Mm -hmm. By pulling together these cross-functional views, stakeholders are able to gain visibility and make better decisions. A central technology component, uh, I believe, is a a vendor inventory, a repository with third-party information, including the completed questionnaire, open source data, and internal assessments are stored and accessed. Other key technology components are the ability to process the workflow and foster the sharing of information. Now, the desired goal is to make the TPRM, a third-party risk management process, more efficient by leveraging a cloud-based platform that contains an extensive database of vendor information that helps perform any of the simple tasks using automation orchestration. To leverage the platform as an enterprise asset, it has to enable self-service and have a common user interface so that anyone from legal, procurement, IT security, executive management can interact with the system to populate the data, gain additional knowledge, record decisions. Ultimately, all these things, the people, process and technology trifecta will help CISOs to understand third party security posture and clearly document and communicate it to business stakeholders and drive continuous improvement to minimize enterprise risk. So that's it. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and 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 that's a huge thing, and and I wanted to talk with you about because there's two pieces that I want to to kind mm-hmm. of explore with you. Um, one of them is very close to my heart, and that's your uh, third party risk management system. You know, that process of maintaining documentation and engaging and getting those questionnaires. Um, you know, I've, I've got an extensive background in that. Not only have I taught that at, like, conferences, you know, third-party management systems and such, uh, but I helped write some privacy things um, for higher education back before I left about helping other education students do that – or, sorry, education institutions do that one thing, and that's – how do you ask questions about privacy from your third parties how do you document that how do you bring that in organization so i really wanted to kind of explore that with you a little bit what are you seeing you know third party risk It has really caught on as as a a major topic you know it's getting into a lot of compliances in the last few years Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly with with privacy uh, and privacy regulations has become a major issue but also because we have more vendors we have more software as services we have more platforms as a service we have a lot of different things that the organization didn't necessarily have to deal with 15, 20 years ago. So talk to me a little bit about what you've seen in the changes of capturing that information, those those questionnaires, those master service agreements, documentation, so talk to me a little bit about that.
2: Well, you know, the, the best time to get at least the baseline information is before you sign any contract, right?
1: Absolutely. Because
2: you're basically screwed once you sign the contract, chasing people, right? So, therefore, yes. one of the things that I did is, you know, I, at least for the IT services, and try to promulgate that in third-party risk management policy that we drafted purchasing, so it's sort of extend the same thinking. So therefore, before we sign a contract, right? What I would do is I'd create a template of 54 questions. Was fifty, then added four more, which uh, due to comply with Privacy Shield at the time, and now it's uh, you know the Privacy Shield frame, framework, uh, data, data privacy framework. I'm sorry. Uh, so making sure that even candidates uh, that you have, Uh, you know, the three different vendors doing POCs applying to get it our priority, right? Get them to fit it, then determine and ask SOC reports. Do all that ahead of time and then drill down, you know, there's some chinks in the armor before the contract is signed, right? Because if you wait till after the contract is signed, they're not motivated. And I'm sorry, they won't do it. It's a signal to flat out. And Jonathan, tell me, am I wrong?
1: (laughs) No, absolutely. I mean, you've signed the contract. (laughs) What is in the contract is what you signed, and therefore that's what you live with. I mean, sometimes you can get things changed with an addendum or whatever, but yeah, you're right. You got to get in before that contract gets signed.
2: Yeah, so and, and then you know there are some but if it's also about trust and stuff, right? <clears throat> Once you build it and they also understand, right? And just as you want them to be robust, they want somebody else your type to to impact their cybersecurity, right? Sure. So people are beginning to understand it. And I, I think nobody likes the process of questionnaires and but yeah. the thing is they're willing to do it, you know, but but sometimes I won't name the company said send, send to me a three hundred question. Yeah. Uh, Survey, and they wanted me to attest that I was meeting everything. And if I didn't meet it, they would audit me against it or make sure that I was compliant. I basically refused to sign it. So, what I'm trying to say is if they're asking, there's got to be a balance somewhere, right? It's it's easy to work on it together. And don't just ask for stuff because you copy pasted, you know, five different references. You're too lazy to consolidate and streamline it, right?
1: right well you know i always tell people in my class when i teach this is a lot of what we do is liability management you know Mm -hmm. you you try to do risk management as best you can but the ultimate goal of a contract in some pieces is liability management and so you that's kind of where you work from so when i was the ciso of the university um there was some things that i put in the contracts that were non-negotiable and it was usually because I had a compliance I had to meet, you know, I, I such as – here's a perfect example. For higher educations, the Department of Education requires you to report within 24 hours of a suspected breach. Now, that's a contractual obligation for federal financial aid. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. So when I have a, a, a vendor who's coming in, that's one of the things that I ask them is, when will you tell me – of a suspected breach, because I have to turn around and tell the government, you know, I have to, the Department of Education. So I would put things like that in there just so that I could meet my obligations. Another one was um, uh, insurance. You know, if I'm giving an organization um, a particular kind of data, so let's say student data or some other, I required them to have a certain level of insurance so that if something bad were to happen. Mm-hmm they would be able to cover, you know, some of those loss. Not everything. Yeah. Um, and I had a vendor who came up one day, um, and, and very nice vendor. I mean, I, I liked the guy. I liked working with him. But he says, Jonathan, I can't meet this requirement. I mean, they're asking me to do five thousand dollars worth of work and to meet this requirement for insurance, for cybersecurity insurance, it's gonna cost me fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. And it's like, I, I understand completely. I truly do. Um, and we didn't end up ending working with that vendor. Uh, but the flip side was he was going to get access to a significant m- number of data subject records. I mean, mm. upwards of half a million to a million records. So for me, that liability was was significant. So I had to be really careful in that. So I agree 100%. I think that there is a balance. Um, and, and I've actually seen it on the other side now because people have come to me now and they say, oh, well, we need you to fill out the HECVAT, um, which is the higher education community vendor assessment tool. And, uh, I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> 433 uh, lines that I have to fill out. And, but, uh, you know, you fill it out once and you go through it, but a lot of stuff I put is like, well, this doesn't pertain to us. I mean, this is, I, I do consulting. I don't, I don't have your data. I don't have this. Uh, But you're right. I think that there is a balance there. Um, But I also think it's incredibly important for us to understand that balance and understand what the risk is and what the liability is on those things.
2: But, you know, that comes full back. So full circle back to what we're talking about. It's about partnership, strategic alliance, yep. and finding the win-win, right? Because both parties need to understand it. it's in their mutual interest to find sure. the best optimal middle ground so that, yep. you know, one's posturing, right? And that's the thing you have to avoid. You know, us, but, you know, it's posturing. Yep. That's the worst enemy of progress and risk enterprise risk. And people start posturing and drawing the, you know, like somebody yep. said, that, you know, the bowling Wall, break down those walls. So.
1: Right, <laughs> right. Well, and and that's the thing, you know, when you get a contract, uh, this is one of the things that I tell people is, you know, a lot of times there's room for negotiation on those contracts. Mm -hmm. You know, I have regularly, I've gotten a contract that's like, this doesn't, you know, we can't do this or we're not going to do this. Or I had a contract once, uh, uh, you might find this funny, um, but I got the contract and it was for an organization that was going to get data. Um, a significant amount of data. But there was a clause in there that they got to keep the data forever. Ah. Because they did research on it. (coughs) Ah. And I'm like, No, I mean, I might be able to be swayed if it was appropriately anonymized. Maybe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that that one clause, as it was written, I, I I cut it out, I redlined it because, and I recommended to my general counsel at the time like we don't want to do this, and she was like, absolutely not. We're the controller. We have this data. We need to protect this data. So, but things like that, I mean, it does happen, and and and, and that's where that go and talk to them, go and ask questions, and engage them, and see if there's a middle ground there.
2: Right. Fully agreed. Yeah.
1: So, okay, so now let's talk about kind of the flip side. You know, we've got that documentation side of dealing with the vendors and getting the the contracts and things like that. But one of the things that I don't think people really think about, and I want to get your thoughts on this, is after the contract is signed, there is so much stuff you have to do. I mean, you number one, you have to meet the contract requirements. But let's say, the contract says that you can get their SOC two report every year. Mm-hmm. I tell them you should ask for that SOC two report every year and get that from them. So, talk to me a little bit about that. What what, what are you seeing, and how do you feel about that? We've led up, we've got the contract signed. Now we're in the middle of the contract. What's what's that process like for you?
2: Yeah, so I think it's like anything else, right? There's a plan for the war and a plan for the peace, right? So the war was, we just talked about the taking the proper governance and guardrails before any contract is signed. So that's great, you signed the contract. Now what? So, if you just simply go from signing a contract to enforcing controls and expectation, it's going to be an abject failure. I'm sorry to say. So, what I've done in the past is uh, every year I'll get with my major vendors, you know, one at a time, and I explain to them my strategic roadmap. Okay, yep. and say these are my you know strategic, tactical, and operational goals, right? So, the strategic things, the strategic initiatives, the zero trust, IAM, whatever, right? And the tactical to how to achieve. Uh, you know, continuous improvement. But the operational no-fooling things say, okay, you know, uh, we have our audit meeting in March of this year, so therefore I need all this stuff from you by December, right? If you don't right. you know, kind of thing just make it very clear to them ahead of time and say, look, this is the stuff And then also the other thing that I've done, you know, at uh, in one company prior to this, I used to actually have a quarterly, a major supplier summit where they would all come in, and then you know each of them us would them would tell, you know, what are they working on and help share. And what I was trying to do is get them to, you know, collaborate with each other and find synergies among us. And doing those kinds of things helps because when they realize that you're trying to share and let them into, you know, what's important to you, they'll respond, right? I mean, sure, sure. Absolutely. So hopefully that makes
1: sense. Yeah, it does. And and it really goes back to that, what we were talking about before, is building that team. I mean, they are a partner. You you signed to mm-hmm. a contract with them. They're being your partner. And you have to engage with them. It's, it's not a sign and forget. You don't just sign the the, the thing and walk away from it. You, you engage. What I tell people to do is they need to read the contract once a year, at least once a year. Um, because there's things that you might forget that you need to do. Uh, you also mm-hmm. may have phone numbers and contact points you need to update on the contract to make sure that if there's an incident, people are going to communicate Mm -hmm. the right way and things like that. So reading the contract once a year at minimum Mm -hmm. is really keep you engaged. But you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's building that relationship with the vendor, talking with them, engaging with them, letting them know where you're at, what you need them to be doing. I mean, those are all critical pieces,
2: no, absolutely. And in my case, I can tell you an example, uh, you know, when, you know, all of them worked to find win-win pricing and exchange for considerations like reference calls, or sometimes speaking at the conferences or whatever. I did all that and were able to mm-hmm. move ahead. But then came COVID, you know, and I read the writing on the wall and I was very Thinking, what can we do to make sure my team is intact and continue to support the business? So I went to all the major partners and said, look, guys, you know, I need to be able to make sure I keep my team intact. And, but for one who was having some staffing transition, all of them came back and cut their prices if I was willing to extend by two or three years. And that sure. was enough to keep my team and believe it or not, invest in the new technology too, which I couldn't have afforded otherwise. Right? So, right. I mean, think about it. It's not just checking the box. They strategically, they saw the value of the partnership, right? Yes. Me and the organization, so they came back in spades because they realized that a weak uh, you know, partner team is not a good way to make their technology development successful. So they invested. So I think, believe Relationship has so many different things, not to mention, of course, I've made a lot of friends along the way, too. I get no right, so
1: well, and, and I think that that's absolutely a key factor because I could certainly see it be said that it's vendor management to the point that you sign and then it's partner management. Yeah, you know, you're really engaging with that partner and managing that relationship.
2: Yeah. You know, I would even say it's even more than that. I would say it's it's alliance management, right? Yeah. So, um, in fact, I'll just give you a quick, you know, true story about myself. Uh, some, some years ago, there's an organization called CXO Sync, and they invited me and two other CISOs to participate in the CISO predictions panel.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And uh, I made uh, a prediction, uh, actually the prediction I made, I can recite it like it was yesterday, due to the convergence of information, security, privacy, and enterprise risk, identity will be the cornerstone for secure delivery of uh, digital application services or the notion of anytime, anywhere authorized access. And I fortunately won with that prediction. So when I came to the winner, they said, okay, do you have any other prediction that you have that you will make? I said, look, and this was three, four, five years ago. I said, do I, I, you know the different airlines like Delta? They have mm-hmm. SkyTeam Alliance and some other has the One World Alliance. And I don't yeah, know all but- the names. I said, technology providers will do that too in the near future. okay? And they all looked at me and said, hmm, but what do we have now? We have at least two that I'm aware of. One is the Spectra Alliance that involves Okta, CrowdStrike, and Proofpoint. And then the Zero Trust Alliance, which includes, I think, Sentinel-1, Zscaler, and Cloudflare. So it's come to pass, right? Because everyone realizes what I was talking about, the power of federation. It's better together. What's the harm in collaborating and building synergies as long as you're not competitors, right? So I think it's the alliance management, not only across... Your, your partners, their partners, so that everyone wins. Because so, what you get by that is you know, and they exchange that insights. Even if you don't have two of the four products, you know, yeah. you, they can share it so that you still benefit. And maybe it's valuable if you invest in that tool at the appropriate time. So I think it's really alliance management. I hope that made sense.
1: It does, and, and I'm, I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hook on something on that real quick. It's a little bit different from the topic, but when we're talking about those alliances, we're talking about those those tools getting together and putting, it. I so many times have gone into an organization, uh, even before I was doing VC work, if I was just helping an organization going in, cause I had a friend or someone there, they would buy a tool and hope that that would make them secure. <laughs> and, 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 and they, don't get me wrong. They would spend a lot of money on that one tool. And it's like, there it's a piece of the process and i think that that's where those alliances are really helpful because if you see a a group of tools get a group of companies that get together it's like hey we're going to put together this this alliance of stuff a process and provide it i really want CISOs to take notes like Why are they putting those together? What benefit do we have? Yeah, I mean, there's always a money issue. I I understand that. But why would it be useful to have an EDR and a SIM and an IDS and all this stuff put together? What decisions can you make after you put those together that you can't make if you don't have those? I mean, that's fundamentally what we do as CISOs is what decisions can you make about security in the organization?
2: If you don't, yeah, let's go. go ahead. No, go, go ahead. No, I was going to say that it brought to my mind this. You asked me a few questions. Let me ask you one. Okay, so let me frame it. Sure. So uh, two scales. One side of the scale is consolidation, putting all the security tools in one platform or one or two platforms, or uh, dis- converging and distributing uh, multiple platforms through integration and interoperability for the appropriate insights. Where do you stand?
1: Okay. So I'm going to answer this. No, hold on. I'm going to answer this truthfully, but I am going to truly answer it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say both because my philosophy is, does it make sense in the business to do it that way? I mean, if it makes sense to consolidate and have Mm -hmm. it all in one tool for that organization, for the people in that organization and the business in that organization, Mm -hmm. then I'm absolutely, let's do it if it makes sense to separate it out and and put the right pieces in there and it makes sense for the business and it makes sense for the organization let's do it i can truly say i am tool agnostic and process agnostic for an organization as long as the process and the tool works yeah. you know if you if that organization comes to me and says they are 100% open source i have my concerns and i will relay those concerns But if it works for them and it meets their business needs and they're secure and they're protected, absolutely, let's do that. If they are all a Microsoft shop, great, let's do it. Let's use these tools. So I'm gonna answer your question of, I think both have valid successful parts in them. And as long as the organization, the business can be successful with that particular format, that's what I care about.
2: Um, and I didn't mean to present you the Hobson's choice, and I, I agree with you, but what <laughs> I will submit to you something. The decision has to be made based on the trifecta of cost, risk, and resources.
1: Yes, yes.
2: And it cannot be done... Irrespective of the business, because in the sense, yeah. what I'm trying to get at is you might consolidate all into one platform and you'll say, OK, maybe I'll get a better cost and maybe I can have a few resources uh, to support. it. Right. But the risk right. may be high because, you know, all the eggs in one basket risk, right? Yes. Yes, Indeed, right? On the other hand, the distributed one, because there's more tools, you may need more resources, but the risk is lower and like maybe they're more effective. So that's the call that you cannot take in a vacuum. It was just, you know. Right. You know. Well,
1: and, and I think it does come back to that business need. You know, what is the decision? And everybody's a little different. You know, every CISO that I know, I know a lot of CISOs, they all think about things differently and they mm-hmm. have different priorities and they have different presentations. And so it's... Uh, I, I think that either one could be very successful, and I think you're absolutely right. You have to evaluate the risk, evaluate the benefits, you know, evaluate the risk, the threats, the vulnerabilities, and the benefits that you have for that thing. And I, one of the things I think people don't really do anymore, and I don't know why, is they don't critically evaluate what they think is right?
2: And you're right, but the the reason for that, sorry to interrupt, is I think we get so caught up in the day-to-day, sometimes firefighting and things that must be done and keep the lights on, blah, blah, blah. We forget the main thing, what is the role of a seesaw? The seesaw is always uh, a business leader and he and his team are balancing on a very narrow fulcrum or pivot, value protection versus value creation. Yep, And if you don't remember that, they're going to tilt one way or the other and take crazy risk. For example, if you say, I want to help the company to grow by M&A and you don't do due diligence properly, you know, you might absorb an entity that might increase risk, right? Right. On the other hand, if you are so worried about protection and making security department of no, you're going to, you know, piss the business off. Sorry to my French, you know. Right, right. (laughs) It's... Does that resonate?
1: Yeah, it does. And and I agree with that. Um, I, I don't know how to fix that necessarily because I think <laughs> – there. I, I mean I, I can tell you how I fix it for myself, and that's imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know, when there's so much times that I'll get in front of a situation that um, I absolutely have the confidence. You know, I can walk in. I can deal with the situation. I can fix the problem. I can do whatever. But there's other times when people ask me a question about a tool or a product. It's like – I don't know. I mean, it's been a year since I've had to deploy one of those myself. I'm going to have to go and find what the answer is. You know, what is that true? um, That 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 value that an organization would get. I had somebody who did that with an EDR. You know, long uh, uh, maybe two weeks ago, and they says, "What do you know about this EDR?" It's like, I don't. No, I mean I don't know that particular tool. I, I hear about it, but I've never used it. Uh, so I, I think that for me, it's it's imposter syndrome you know, because I know that I need to go learn, I need to grow, and I need to, to build my my skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that, or a lot of people I hope would feel that because they should be growing and learning.
2: Yeah, one last thing I know is a minute left. Uh, you know, it, it behooves all of us, you, me, to be evangelists for the profession, right, and trying to raise awareness of certain topics. And just a few days ago, I read this interesting factoid that SC Media reported that at some point that only 35% of security professionals say they are very familiar with zero trust. 35% for something that's so strategic in my view, right? That effective yeah. Identity, zero trust, and STP. So that's where, you know, folks like you and me, you know, We can go out and explain to people. So I just wanted to leave that with folks something to think about.
1: No, I I love that and that's great. And Arun, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a lot of fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. Um, I wanted to let everybody know that Kim will be back uh, next week with uh, another great guest. We've got some great events coming up. I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. This was great for me. I learned a lot from Arun. Um, I hope everyone uh, did as well. Uh, We will see you next time here at and security for all thanks everybody
0: thank you for tuning into and security for all be sure to join your host kim hakem for another episode of the show next friday at noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and don't forget you can follow kim on linkedin by searching for kim hakem that's kim h-a-k-i-m to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events.